something that is hidden or concealed as opposed to something that is patent. So latent versus patent. So something that is present but not yet manifest. The number of people estimated to be latently infected with TB, that is infected with TB, which has not yet manifested symptoms, is around 2 billion. 2 billion. That is one in three people on the planet are infected with the bacteria. The World Health Organization's website notes that an average 5 to 10% of those infected with TB will develop active TB. That number is terrifying. But a new analysis published in the BMJ suggests that the assumption that latent TB often has a very long incubation period of many years may be wrong. I'm Paul Simpson, international audience editor for the BMJ, and in this podcast, I'm talking to the authors of this new analysis paper to see why they're revisiting the timetable for TB and what that might mean for the fight against the disease. Firstly, let's think about the biology of TB. Mycobacterium tuberculosis usually infects the lungs and is spread through airborne droplets and physical contact. As with all bacterial infections, there's a period between the point of infection and the development of symptoms of the disease in the host. But in TB, it is thought that this period is much longer than in most other infections. Lalita Ramakrishnan, is Professor of Immunology and Infectious Diseases at Cambridge University. It's widely believed that when the TB bacteria enter the body, in many individuals, they go into a dormant state from which these bacteria can then awaken decades later to cause disease that can then be transmitted to other people. And because of this, latent TB is deemed to be a substantial problem, and that's why that number of two billion or one-third of the world is, is, is such a frightening uh, figure because these latently infected people in, in whom the bacteria have become dormant are now deemed to be walking time bombs for reactivating infection that is not only morbid to the individual themselves, but also transmissible to others and thereby a way to sustain the global epidemic of TB or the global burden of TB. I shouldn't call it an epidemic, the global burden of TB. So is there a, is there a sort of special biology involved here then? Well, um, there is thought to be a special biology involved because the what comes with this with this thinking that the bacteria that the bacteria can lurk or linger in the body for those many decades without manifesting um, disease, there comes the idea that these bacteria have attained some kind of special state. And words that are used to describe it by uh, by papers, by investigators, by funding bodies are words like alive but inactive, mm. dormant. Uh, and and so it gives you the idea that the bot that the bacteria have essentially become metabolically inactive or have undergone some kind of replicative slowing or arrest that 
from which they then awaken. Mm-hmm. So, so the central argument of your analysis is that most TB cases manifest within 18 to 24 months after infection and that only a small proportion uh, are incubated for a longer period of time than that. When I first read that, I found that a bit shocking. <laughs> I mean, I'm not an expert in TB, but I've read a lot about TB and handled a lot of, of papers for medical journals on TB. And it did seem that that was going to be con- a controversial statement. Is, is it controversial? First of all, uh, we would say that the, the, the data strongly suggests that the incubation period of TB is not 18 to 24 months, but really three to six months to 24 months. So even shorter. Even shorter. Right, okay. <laughs> or, or certainly the range is yeah. is is more towards the short. Within 18 includes, to 24. Yes, exactly. So within 18 to 24 months. And, um, well, is it controversial? If you ask the people who've done the primary studies that have shown this, then then no, they, the, the, da- the data are there. Mm-hmm. And pretty much every single study that has followed the timeline of TB has come to the same conclusion, starting from uh, the, the, the 40s in the pre-antibiotic era and going into paper, studies that have been done in, in, in this century. So I would say it would certainly be not, not, certainly not be controversial in that group of people, nor actually amongst a number of clinicians in high burden areas who seem to recognize that most TB is manifested early and that that, that is the major burden of TB. What's the evidence to back this up? Lolita works in a cutting-edge molecular biology lab where she uses the model organisms zebrafish and mycobacterium marinum to find novel pathways involved in the infection. But this isn't where the evidence on latency has come from. For that, we have to go back to the days of astute clinicians working with pen and paper in a remote group of islands in the North Atlantic Ocean. The um, Faroe Islands public health authorities were at the time in the 1930s and 1940s, tuberculin skin testing everybody in the population, at least annually, and sometimes more often if they knew that there was an active case. That's Paul Edelstein, Professor of Pathology and Laboratory Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania, who's been scouring the archives. The Faroe Islands, part of the Kingdom of Denmark, are a remote archipelago of islands between Scotland and Iceland, 160 miles over rough seas from its closest neighbour. Back in the 1930s, the population was only around 25,000, so the doctors diagnosing TB were very close to their patients. Uh, Axel Poulsen was this public health official who served on the islands as a tuberculosis control officer from the 1930s, I think, up until probably sometime in the 1960s. He says in one of his papers... For many years, it has been like this on the Faroe Isles. If you meet a person who does not know about his tuberculin reaction, you can be sure that he is either a stranger, an imbecile, or an asocial individual. So that gives you an idea of how well they knew 
the tuberculin reactivity of everybody on the island so they could find a new case quite easily. So uh, Poulsen in one paper published case studies of these people and I'll read to you a couple of these because they're really interesting to let you know the um, level of detail that he knew about the patients. So here's a female aged 32 living in a village of 137 houses, went to another village of 200 houses to a wedding on November 14th, 1937, and returned to her home village where no cases of tuberculosis had been encountered. Among the guests attending the wedding, there was a man aged 26 who was admitted to the sanatorium on December 21st, 1937, with tubercle bacilli in the sputum. The lady remained well until December 28, 1937, when she got initial fever, and two days later, she had erythema nodosum and was tuberculin skin test positive. The fever subsided in the course of a fortnight. On April 13, 1938, an X-ray film showed infiltration of the left lung, Eleven months later, there was left-sided pleurisy with effusion. On May 8, 1939, she developed peritoneal tuberculosis. So, so here's one female, age 39, living in a village of seven houses. On March 31, 1940, she attended the ceremony of confirmation in a village of 124 houses, where she stayed from 11 a.m. until 5 p.m., on this occasion, she kissed one of the confirmees, who was a close relative of hers, and who was admitted to the sanitarium on June 3, 1940, with open pulmonary tuberculosis. Where she lived, there was no tuberculosis. She remained well until May 12, 1940, when she got initial fever and erythema nodosum. On May 25th, her skin test was positive. On June 7, 1940, fluoroscopy showed increased lung markings from the right hyalus down to the diaphragm, but no infiltration was demonstrable. Seven months after the initial onset of fever, she had left-sided pleurisy with effusion. Nine months after the onset of initial fever, she developed peritoneal tuberculosis. So by these observations, he could very accurately determine the incubation period of tuberculosis, often um, to the hour. With colleagues, Paul plotted the time period between point of infection and when the first signs of the disease were observed in Paulson's data and in subsequent studies. And pretty much they all showed the same thing, that within about uh, two months after initial contact or initial evidence of a positive skin test, people developed signs and symptoms of tuberculosis. These were usually characterized as fever and a type of a skin rash that's called erythema nodosum that's a sort of a red 
uh, rash that is found on the uh, on the legs. Then when these people were followed further, they uh, were then followed for the development of pulmonary or other organ tuberculosis. And they all show that usually within a year, more than half of the people developed tuberculosis. And after two years, the vast majority, usually somewhere in the range of 90%, sometimes 95% of people had developed tuberculosis. Obviously, medical technology has changed since 1930. At the time, there was no effective treatment for TB, at least until 1952, when isoniazid was developed. Isoniazid, an antibiotic, can be used to treat TB infection and hence reduce the rate of the development of active TB. Paul and his colleagues looked at the data to see whether the development of antibiotics had changed the latency period. Well, they... They, they tell you the same thing. We have a um, study done as, as part of a trial of the use of isoniazid to prevent the development of tuberculosis. And all these trials use control populations of people who uh, either were or weren't known to have a positive tuberculin skin test. And you see the same thing, that the vast majority of people who did not receive isoniazid therapy developed their tuberculosis within a two-year period of time. And, it's, and incidentally, they showed that isoniazid was really pretty effective at preventing the development of tuberculosis. These post-antibiotic trials that Paul has just been telling you about were not were were done as some of them were done as late as uh, in this century in the you know in the two thousand. Uh, for example, a study uh, from Borgdorf's group was done in the Netherlands, yeah. where they have really good um, uh, TB contact tracing, and they could they could therefore get hold of people. Or, or who had had contact with active TB cases, but then, you know, they might elect not to take uh, preventive mm-hmm. isoniazid therapy, even though it was offered. And so they could follow those people. And once again, they came to the exact same conclusion. So, you know, just over and over, we're finding the exact same graph. We could almost draw the same graph multiple times over. Yeah. Yeah, that's, it, it's quite compelling. Yeah, and and there's one thing I want to add that's a little bit of a non sequitur, but the the trial that uh, the, the isoniazid trial from which we got that Paul talked about, from which we got all that beautiful data, uh, uh, going ten years to look at what happened to, to to look at the incubation period in in that period, it was all done by a woman called Shirley Ferriby who single-handedly did this amazing uh, piece of epidemiological work. And uh, so uh, I just wanted to put in a little plug for women in epidemiology and science. (laughs) The observational data that the team have analyzed and plotted show pretty compelling similarity. 
Latency periods are measured in months to years, not decades. In regions where there are high endemic levels of infection, or even during a particular outbreak, the kind of contact tracing that Paulson was able to do in the Faroes is difficult. The Faroes are isolated islands with small villages, and in the 1930s, the population was pretty tiny. Weddings, or the arrival of a new person were noteworthy events around which these observations were made. In modern cities, the number of potential contact points where the bacteria can be transmitted are numbered in the thousands every day. How can we be sure when an infection happens so that we can calculate the latency period for TB? Marcel Baer, professor of medicine at McGill University, has looked at the molecular epidemiology of TB using DNA fingerprinting and evolutionary modelling to look at how TB is spreading and its latency period in the modern world. There's been um, a few other studies that have looked at it by tracking the bacteria using the DNA fingerprints, which was called RFLP in the 90s and the 2000s, and more recently using something called whole genome sequencing, where you subject every each bacterial isolate that you want to study to a complete genome sequence to find out to what extent bacteria A differs or is almost the same or identical to bacteria B. And that way you can kind of precisely identify if person A did or did not transmit to person B because it, it turns out that even when two people live in the same household, they don't always have the same bacteria. So sometimes they do have the same strain and there's transmission, but sometimes they actually acquire the bacteria elsewhere. But when you have epidemiology and you have genome sequencing, now you can very much pinpoint an exact transmission event. And there are three different studies, study architectures that we decided to highlight. One was that in the Netherlands, Martin Borgdorf and colleagues had access to 15 years of DNA fingerprints for the entire country. And in that manner, they would have fingerprints that were unique, which indicates an imported strain from elsewhere. And they had fingerprints that were part of a chain. And if you have three or more people in a chain of transmission, it's very hard to know who was number one and who was number two and so on. But what they did is they simply looked at all the pairs when there were two people with the same DNA fingerprint in the country and said, here is an instance where there must be a source and a single secondary case. And they asked, what was the interval between those two cases? And, you know, nearly half happened within a year and the majority happened within two years. And then there was a trickle of times the interval would be three years or four years or something out beyond that. But again, at a national level, they found that the majority of secondary cases of TB, when there was a source and a secondary identified, the secondary cases manifest within two years. Then there's been whole genome sequencing analysis of outbreaks, and one was done in British Columbia, Canada, where they combined the timing of the outbreak with the precise mutations that occurred so that rather than using the date when somebody was diagnosed, they actually inferred the date that the transmission event happened by understanding the mutation of the bacterial genome and backdating to when they thought the outbreak was really happening. Because there could be a delay where you might be diagnosed six to nine months after you've actually exposed other people. And they did that 
in order to determine when there were secondary cases, were these secondary cases that merely represented the incubation period of infection, or were the secondary cases trickling out two years or three years maybe later because there was ongoing transmission in that community. And when you look at the timeline from that paper and you date it back to when transmission happened, you'll see that most of the secondary cases occurred within one or sometimes two years of the event, the exposure event. And then in a study that I was involved in, we did whole genome sequencing, all of the isolates from one village where there was an outbreak in 2012, but we had the isolates that dated back to the year 1991. So we had 22 years of whole genome sequence data for one village. And what we could see is that there were different clones circulating between 1991 and 96, and then there was a second clone between 1996 and 2004, so that there was like a burst of TB, and then that clone disappeared. And then there was a next burst of TB, and then that clone disappeared. And then there was a, a new clone that appeared towards 2007, and there was a series of chains of transmission that led to the outbreak we described in 2012. And since we had the public health information on all the cases in the outbreak and we had the whole genome sequence information, we could break it down into very fine transmission events. And there were a few things we noticed. One was that nearly all the 2012 cases were either exposed in 2012 or exposed in 2011 with almost no mutation. In fact, often it was the exact same bacterium with zero base pair mutations or polymorphisms between uh, people. But the other thing that was interesting is this is a community where over half of the adults are tuberculin positive, indicating that they have been exposed at some point in their past. And some of the people who were in the outbreak had actually had TB diagnosed and treated in 1991 or in 1997 or at some point in the past. But despite the fact that there is such a high prevalence of a tuberculin positivity and that people had previously had TB, all of the people in 2012 had the 2012 strain. Nobody broke down some sort of an infection or nobody reactivated a bacteria from the previous decades. So once again, it looked like during that outbreak, most of the secondary cases were really direct infection to, to disease over the course of probably six to 24 months. An important message in the paper is that TB disease can occur decades after infection, but it is a relatively rare event. What's important is the context. In high income settings with a low prevalence of TB, remote infections are more important than in high prevalence settings. What some people may say about your analysis is that it's a narrative. And so you've built what I think sounds like a compelling argument. How have you tried to ensure that, uh, that, that you haven't sort of provided a systematically kind of positive argument? Well, we have uh, looked, we have looked at, we've tried to do searches for any studies be they epidemiological, be they molecular, um, be they uh, looking at clinical microbiology. And we've tried to find any study that, that encompassed the number of years that would, that would take to, to look at this case. 
And we've just failed to find anything that contradicts uh, these studies. And, 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 and you have to understand, Paul, that first of all, we did not start with any bias in this matter because, you know, we were brought up on the same, on the same uh, mantra that TB gets into you and in many cases it goes to sleep and it can wake up. And believe me, we've probably said this to people. We might even be guilty of teaching it to our medical students in years gone by. And then, but it was then that we, when we started to look at things, that we, when we started to look at studies, we said, wait a minute, uh, this study isn't showing us this. And we're, we're data-driven people. So, you know, we, we started to pursue this more, and we really did try to uh, to disprove this model, but have yet to find anything that that helps us to disprove it. You know, so I don't think we've. I I'm pretty certain we've not cherry picked studies. As as we wrote this and we rewrote this and and we reiterated the the concepts, we circulated this to many of our colleagues and openly invited colleagues who've also been brought up on the same paradigm of tuberculosis and have also used the same slides in their lectures. And we asked them, please tell us what's wrong with this. Please tell us what we overlooked. Please tell us, show us the articles that contradict what we said. And um, so far we have not been successful in having people contradict this. Now that the article is coming out for greater publication and greater distribution, perhaps there will be some more information forthcoming. But until now, uh, our efforts to be disproven were, were not realized. So if we believe there's been a general overestimation of the latency time for TB, that would mean that there's a subsequent overestimation of the number of people who may have latent TB at any one point. How is it then that the current consensus conclusion is that fully one-third of the world's population carries a TB infection? That figure is partly modelled from rates of positive immunoassays. And really what this, what this is telling us is that the, that the individual is having a cellular immune response to an antigen from the TB bacterium. Now, Really, all that tells you then is that they have seen the immune the, the bacterium before and and been and mounted an immune response, and there's been a conflation of that number of people who are skin test positive with uh, the idea that these people then are infected with TB. And so this, of course, then made us dig further into into that area and. There are studies showing that people who are successfully treated with TB uh, for long enough to know that they're not going to get it back retain a positive skin test. Mm. So this is an immune response that can stay with you uh, for long periods of time. And in fact, um, just to, uh, to throw something interesting out, there's actually old studies, again, very nice in our view, that say that these that people who have manif who have a positive skin test, but never got TB, are actually uh, have a, 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 a substantial measure of protection against TB. So not only do we not need to be uh, alarmed by this this number, but 
in some ways, maybe this number number could even be a, a source of comfort. So what does this actually mean for global health and the fight against the disease? The WHO and the Global Fund have identified a funding gap of $1.6 billion in annual international support for the fight against tuberculosis. So where we spend our funds on research and treatment are incredibly important. We need to stress that in high-income, low-prevalence countries, very long incubation period tuberculosis is a significant problem and um, uh, devoting public health resources to trying to reduce that is uh, also worthwhile. But in um, lower and middle income countries, um, devoting resources to latent tuberculosis or what we would like prefer to call long incubation period tuberculosis may not be as beneficial. The fear that that there's this very, you know, this unmanageable, unmanageably large population of latently infected people who are walking time bombs for disease um, uh, need not be a fear. I, I guess we don't need to, may, maybe we can channel our efforts to looking at how do we treat active TB better. One big problem is that the treatment period for, for, for TB disease is six months, and that is deemed to be too long. And so we can, we can maybe divert more of our efforts to, to that arena. Uh, and then in, in terms of public health measures, better diagnostics, and better contact tracing rather than worry so much about uh, the, uh, the, the so-called latently infected individuals. I think one of the other uh, very valuable messages is we often read that vaccine trials are very uh, expensive and burdensome because of the long and variable incubation period of tuberculosis when in fact these timelines suggest that vaccine trials need not take two decades and that the bulk of the events uh, witnessed in a vaccine trial could be witnessed within a couple of years. We don't have to see TB as so complicated that it's, it's, it's too big to do the studies or too complicated to do studies. You've been listening to Lalita Ramakrishnan, Paul Edelstein and Marcel Baer discuss their analysis paper, The Forgotten Timetable of Tuberculosis. If you want to find out more, including the graphs that show the length of the latency period that we've been discussing, have a look on the BMJ website now. That's all for this podcast. If you've enjoyed it, rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've got any questions and comments on the analysis paper itself, please go online to our rapid responses. I'm Paul Simpson, international audience editor for the BMJ. Thanks for listening.